Father, we are so thankful for your tremendous grace and mercy that you have poured out and demonstrated in sending your son Jesus to die for our sins. We're so thankful for your convicting word that reveals our sin and uh, reveals your son Jesus, the only Savior. Father, we're thankful that you also use your word to grow us in respect to salvation. And I pray our hearts would be prepared and ready to receive your word, that it would produce in us that which is pleasing in your sight. We thank you for this time. We commit it to you now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, what do you think of when you think of an enemy? Webster's defines the word enemy as an antagonist to one another, uh, especially one seeking to injure or overthrow or confound an opponent, uh, something that is harmful or deadly. What about you? Have you ever had an enemy before? One who desires to injure you, to overthrow you, or even to kill you? Certainly we understand in the idea of war that there are enemies that desire to kill one another. Remember in Matthew 13, in the parable of the wheat and tares, Jesus said that an enemy sowed the tares. And he identifies that enemy as the devil. We see in Scripture that God's enemy is the devil, but also he is our enemy. And today, as we look at Peter's final instructions to the suffering sojourner, we're going to see how we are to respond, how we are to react, how we are to respond and to be able to withstand the devil's attacks. Would you turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 5? 1 Peter chapter 5. And we are continuing our study in the book of 1 Peter. We're going to be looking at verses 8 to 11. And if you've been with us in our journey in 1 Peter, you've seen that Peter is writing to believers in Asia Minor, those who are suffering and those who are about to suffer a fiery ordeal. And he is sharing with these chosen sojourners how they are to respond in the context of the suffering that they will have come upon them for following Christ. He has shared our great salvation in the person of Jesus Christ, that we've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And within that, God uses temporal sufferings to purify us, to to bring to the surface that dross that he may wipe it away. We saw in light of the great salvation we have in Christ, we are to fix our hope completely on Christ alone. We are to be holy because he is holy. We are to live in godly fear because of what Christ has done for us. We are to love the body of Christ. We've been born again unto a sincere love of the brethren. And we are to yearn for the pure milk of the word that we might grow in respect to salvation. And then he shared in chapter 2 that we are being built up. God is building us up as a spiritual house to offer spiritual sacrifices, those which are pleasing to him. We have been delivered. We have been saved. We were not his people. Now we are his people We didn't have his mercy. We've received his mercy that we would proclaim his excellencies. And then in chapter 2, he begins to share the application portion of the letter in which we saw as aliens and, and sojourners, temporary residents on this earth, as believers, we are to abstain or keep away from fleshly lusts which wage war with our soul. And we saw how our behavior should be among the Gentiles, among non-believers, that we should be walking in a way that's worthy of of this great calling that we have, and that as they observe and slander us for our good deeds, 
uh, they might glorify God in the day of visitation, the day that he visits them, hopefully in repentance, in their repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. We saw how we're to respond to governing authorities. We're to submit to those governing authorities that God has placed. We saw relationships concerning slaves and masters' submission, even to a harsh master, realizing that we've been called for this purpose, to, uh, to follow in Christ's footsteps, a tracing pattern. We've been called to trace in his footsteps that God used his suffering to bring about his redemptive plan. And Jesus kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously, and he did not revile and return or utter any threats. And from that, he brought about our redemption in obedience to the Lord's plan. We saw in chapter 3 that likewise, wives are to submit with godly fear. And all of us are to be same-minded, kind-hearted, brotherly, humble towards one another, knowing that God's ears are attentive to the prayer of the righteous. And we're not to be intimidated by those who would persecute us, but do what is right, sanctifying Christ as Lord of our hearts, being ready to give an account for the hope that we have, yet with gentleness and reverence. You see, because Christ suffered for doing what is right, and that brought about our redemption. Then in chapter 4, we saw in light of Christ's suffering, we are to arm ourselves with the same intent, the same purpose, to think rightly about our suffering for the person of Christ. We are to submit to God, entrust ourselves to him, the one who judges righteously. And those who malign us, they're going to be judged if they don't repent. The judge is standing right at the door. And then the end of the chapter, middle to the end of the chapter, Peter says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, to be of sober spirit and sound judgment for the purpose of prayer, get your relationship with Christ right in the midst of suffering. And we are to, above all, keep fervent in our love for one another. And we are commanded to, as God has given us a special gift, to employ it in serving one another. And in the end of chapter 4, we saw that they are to recognize the reality that, that these fiery ideals coming upon them are for their testing that it is an evidence that they are the Lord's. That if God would allow these things to come upon his church to purify, what will happen to those who do not obey the gospel of God? And we kind of have a summary of how we are to respond in light of the persecution that will come our way for following Christ in chapter 4, verse 19. Therefore, let those also who suffer for the will of God entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. And then we came to the end of the book as we have the final exhortations in chapter 5. We saw uh, Peter as a fellow elder exhorting the elders to shepherd the flock of God among them. Not under compulsion, not lording over, but, but doing it willingly according to the will of God, focusing on the chief shepherd. And then last week we saw that we are to humbly submit to God. Younger men, the younger are to submit to their elders. And all of us are to put on the servant's garb of humility towards one another. Because God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And thus we need to humble ourselves before the mighty hand of God, that he would exalt us at the proper time. And we saw one element of that humbling, casting all your cares upon him, for he cares for you. We have a mighty God who is above all the situations in our lives, and he cares for us, therefore cast your cares upon him throw them continually upon him and it's from this point peter moves to how we are to withstand the devil's fierce attacks i'm going to move back and read from verse 5 what we looked at last week and read through uh, verse 11 but today we're only going to study verses 8 and 9 
Uh, verse 5 of chapter 5 of 1 Peter. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The, uh, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety upon him because he cares for you. And then our passage. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren around the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. So how can we withstand the devil's fierce attacks? I think first of all, we're going to see that we need to recognize we are vulnerable to his attacks when we are suffering for doing what is right. We're vulnerable. We're vulnerable. Look at verse 8. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Here we have two commands and then the reasoning. Do this, do this, basically because of this. Because of this. And here we see, he says, your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. The term adversary is pretty, pretty easy to understand. It's one who is an opponent, one who is an enemy. It is one who is constantly hostile towards you your adversary you see when we came to faith in jesus christ the enemy of christ became our personal enemy we have an adversary the adversary of our lord jesus is our adversary and that is the devil well what do we know about the devil in scripture i want to share a few things we'll talk about that but we don't want to focus on him we just want to know what god tells us in scripture so that we can avoid and trust in jesus christ But as we look at this, I want to share a few things, and then we'll come back to our passage and see what we are to do. If you'll turn to Ezekiel chapter 28, we've gone through this before when we did our study in the book of Ezekiel, but we see that God gives us a view into uh, his beginning, the devil's beginning. Do you remember we saw Lucifer's sinless beginning? Look at Ezekiel 28 verse 11. Now, in the book of Ezekiel and also in Isaiah, the Lord is going to declare some things towards the king of Tyre. And this king of Tyre, it was an evil man. And from that, he's going to morph into a a declaration concerning the power and force behind the king of Tyre, which is the devil, as we will say. And it'll be clear. Ezekiel 28, verse 14, or verse 11. Again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation against the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord. Now, here's where it's not simply the king of Tyre. It's the power behind him because these things could not speak of a human being, as we're going to say. He says, You had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden. Now, the king of Tyre wasn't Eden, by the way. You were in Eden and the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the ruby, the topaz, and the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, and the jasper, and the lapis lazuli, the turquoise, and the emerald, and the gold, 
and the workmanship of your settings and sockets. The New King James says pipes and timbrels, speaks of uh, musical instruments, was in you on the day that you were created. They were prepared. We see that Lucifer was created perfect in wisdom and beauty. He was in Eden. He was covered with jewels. Obviously, a jewel is nothing apart from light shining through it. He's reflecting the glory of God. He was the anointed cherub who covers. Lucifer, the name means light bearer. He was created, as we see, to praise God in song, the pipes and timbrels. And do you remember his grand privileges? Look at verse 14. You were the anointed cherub who covers. There was a special position. He was a cherub. That's an angel. And I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. Satan was the most beautiful creation, an angel, a cherub, with the grandest of privileges. And remember, he was created without sin, without sin. But look in Ezekiel 28 again as we'll continue, and then Isaiah 14, notice what happens. Verse 15, you were blameless in your ways from the day you were created. God did not create him evil. He says, until unrighteousness was found in you. By the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence, and you sinned. Therefore, I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God, and I have destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I put you before kings that they may see you. By the multitude of your iniquities and the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. Therefore, I have brought fire from the midst of you. It has consumed you. And I have turned you to ashes on the earth. In the eyes of all who see you, all who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. Some don't know him. We know him. The Bible explains who he is, right? All who know you are appalled at you. You have become terrified and you will be no more. Take a look at Isaiah chapter 14. We see what's behind Satan's fall. Isaiah 14. So we have the most beautiful cherub in the highest position uh, who sinned and fell. Okay? Look at Isaiah 14 verse 9. Now again, this is the, uh, the same pattern here where it is speaking of an earthly king and then it morphs into a prophecy and a description, con- not a prophecy, but a description concerning that evil power behind that and it's very clear. It's very clear who it is. Uh, Isaiah 14 verse 9. Sheol from beneath is excited over you, that's the grave, to meet you when you come. It arouses for you the spirits of the dead, all the leaders of the earth. It raises all the kings of the nations from their thrones. They will respond to and say to you, even you have been made weak as we. You have become like us. Your pomp and the music of your hearts has been brought down to Sheol. Maggots are spread out as your bed beneath you and worms are your covering. Now it goes to that, that, that one that's behind this, this earthly king. How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, O son of dawn. You have been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. The stars of God were, were the angels. And I will sit upon the mount of, the assemb- of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. Here we see his horrible pride and sin. Nevertheless, you'll be thrown down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit. 
Now we know in Revelation chapter 12, verse 4, that when Satan fell, he took a third of the angels. We have that imagery of this dragon with his tail taking a third of the angels. But yet Satan has access to God, but he was cast down to earth that all would be who know him would be appalled. So Satan, the most beautiful, powerful angel, having fallen now in Scripture, we see continually comes against the people of God. He comes against us, as we're going to see. Now, what are his schemes? How does he do it? How does he do it? We know in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11, Paul says, we are not ignorant, we are not unknowledgeable about his schemes. We know what they are, and his schemes have not changed. We're told in Ephesians chapter 6 that... Uh, we are to put on the full armor of God that we may be able to stand firm against what? The schemes of the devil. The term schemes, uh, methodia, speaks of a procedure or a method. It's his stratagems. It's his cunning devices. It's, it's the way he does things. The way he does things. And if you know anything about military uh, battle or war, you need to understand the schemes or the methods of your enemy to defeat your enemy. And God has made it clear what our enemy does. Now, what are his schemes? I want to share uh, his names and what they mean, and that will give us a clue to how he tries to do things uh, against the people of God. First of all, um, let's take a look at Revelation chapter 20. We have all four names uh, relayed there. Revelation 20, verse 1. Revelation 20, verse 1. Now, again, I'm not sharing these things to, to get you focused on him. That's not the point, but to understand his schemes so that we focus on Christ and trust in him, that we would not fall prey, that we would not fall prey. Revelation 20, verse 1, And I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand, and he laid hold of, notice here, the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil, and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. This is after the tribulation. Satan's bound for a thousand years. But we have all four names relayed here. First of all, he's called the dragon. That's that metaphoric description of a monstrous reptile. He's no longer a, a, a beautiful angel covering that sense that he is a, an awful dragon. We also see him called as the serpent of old, obviously pointing to the reality of what we see in Genesis chapter 3, a cunning serpent, the serpent of old, the wicked deception that he brought forth upon Eve in the garden. Third, we see the name devil, that's diabolos. Uh, the, the word literally means to throw through. Diabolos is throw, dia is, is through. And sometimes you can't put the pieces together like that and get a meaning, but in this one you can. He is the one who divides. He throws through. He divides. He uses sin and fear and death as his tool. And then we see the name Satan, which means adversary. Satan is the constant enemy of God and his people. The name Satan means adversary. Now we see in uh, Revelation chapter 12 that he is the accuser of the brethren. He accuses them day and night before our God, they say in Revelation chapter 12. We see in Zechariah chapter 3 that he came to accuse. He came to accuse uh, Joshua the high priest. Zechariah 3.1. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. Satan continually accuses believers before God. He is the accuser of the brethren. But praise the Lord, we have an advocate, the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the righteous. 
And we are righteous because of Christ. But yet Satan continues to accuse. In Matthew chapter 3, we see the Lord Jesus calls him specifically the tempter. We see that portion in Matthew. He's the tempter. And actually, actually uh, Matthew's call declares that concerning when Jesus was being tempted by Satan. And the tempter came and said to him. First Thessalonians 3, 5, he is called the tempter. So we have the devil, the serpent of old, the monstrous dragon, uh, Satan, the accuser of the brethren, the tempter. Well, what else do we know about him and his nature? Just a few things. Look at John chapter 8. John chapter 8, verse 44. The Lord Jesus is speaking to those who are spiritually still uh, of Satan. Every one of us is in Satan's domain until we come to faith in Jesus Christ and we are transferred from his domain to the kingdom of his beloved, from Satan's domain to the kingdom of his beloved son, Jesus Christ. John chapter 8, verse 44. Jesus says, you are of your father, the devil. That's your spiritual father. And you want to do the desires of your father. That's what you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning. What is murder? It's, it's causing separation, death. He's the throw through. He uses death and, and sin as his tools. And does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, now this doesn't mean he lies every time. He sometimes speaks truth, but it's mixed. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. He's a murderer and a liar. That's what we see. And then in chapter 2 of Hebrews, he has uh, Satan, we see, uh, has the power of death, but Christ has defeated him. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. As I mentioned earlier in Matthew chapter 13, he is the Lord's enemy and thus our enemy. He's an enemy. Now we know in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, our enemy actually does something. Actually, let's turn to 2 Corinthians 11. Because we tend to think it's this uh, bad guy in a pitchfork coming around to get us. But we see that his strategies are different than that. It's not always a blatant out front attack as we're going to say. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. The Apostle Paul is trying to woo back the Corinthians' hearts. They have let their hearts be yoked to false teachers, false apostles. And Paul is sharing the truth with them in Christ. And he says, speaking of those false teachers, 2 Corinthians 11 verse 13, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. They disguise themselves. And no wonder... For even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Guess what? He used to be an angel of light. And he disguises himself. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their deeds. Now, one last passage I want to turn to in regard to uh, Satan is in Genesis chapter 3, and I just want to briefly touch on one small portion here, and then we'll get back to our passage. We know that he's the tempter, and he used deception to tempt Eve. What do we see in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1? Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field 
which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. We see right away he tempts Eve to doubt God's word and thus God's character. Remember in the parable of the sower, he takes God's word and steals it away. Steals it away. Later on in chapter 3, says, uh, he said, uh, verse 4, he says, In the serpent of the Lord, you shall surely not die, actually contradicting the word of God. Satan tempts us to doubt the word of God and thus doubt the character of God. He tempts us to doubt God's goodness. Look at uh, verse 2. And the woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, You shall not surely die. For God knows in the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You are missing out, Eve. God is holding back from you. He is not good. Satan tempts us to believe lies concerning God and what God has said. And what's the big lie within these temptations? That our judgment is as good as God's. You see, remember from James 3, our wisdom, earthly wisdom, is earthly, natural, and demonic. But the wisdom from above is pure. Now, one caveat, we can't blame Satan for everything. We know from James 1 clearly that, that we sin when we uh, give into our desires, and when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. But yet we have an enemy. We have an enemy who tempts us to rely on our own wisdom, who tempts us to rely on our own understanding, who tempts us to, 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 not, to doubt what God has said. Rather than trusting in the Lord with all our heart and not leaning on our own understanding, rather than in all our ways acknowledging Him, we begin to acknowledge our own understanding concerning our circumstances, rather than allowing His Word to filter through what we're thinking. So then Satan deceptively tempts believers to trust our own judgment that it's as good as God's, to doubt God's word. One last thing, how does Satan, uh, what does he do? What are his schemes? One other major scheme that he uses is he takes advantage and capitalizes on our disobedience and sin. Turn to, turn to Ephesians 4. I wasn't going to go, but let's turn to Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4. It's a pretty straightforward uh, passage in the context of the commands to walk worthy of the calling which we've been called. Ephesians 4.26, Paul tells the Ephesians, Be angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And it's interesting, I've shared this before, but these words, anger, orge, it's this, this anger, be angry, but do not sin. Don't let your sun go down on your para or gizmost. What is even alongside anger? Don't even be irritated about the situation by the time you go to bed. And Why? And do not give the devil an opportunity. You see, when we do not yield over even righteous anger to the Lord, it's only righteous for a little bit. The anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. You may see something that angers you because it is so sinful and wrong, you've got to give it over right away. But there's also sinful anger. We're not to let the sun go down on even being irritated lest we give Satan a place in our hearts. He takes advantage of our sin, brothers and sisters. We know from James chapter 4 that when we don't submit to God, when we're caught up in worldliness and our own desires, 
that uh, Satan takes advantage. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Be miserable and mourn. Weep over your sins. See yourself rightly. And lastly, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, there was a brother who had done horrible sins, and the body had done the right thing and had put him out, that his heart might be changed, that he might repent. And he repented. And he came back in the context of repentance. And the Apostle Paul has to encourage the body to forgive him, lest you give Satan an opportunity or give him an advantage. 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 2. But whom you forgive, verse 10, I forgive also. For indeed, what I've forgiven, if anything has been forgiven, I did it for the sakes, in, for your sakes, the presence of Christ, in order that no advantage be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. If you've got sin in your life that is unconfessed, we can be forgiven immediately. You have wrong attitudes towards people. Uh, you have not forgiven someone. Satan takes advantage of you. And it will come out in your thinking, how you think about those people. And the result will be his work, which is separation, division, conflict, all that stuff. All that stuff. Now let me ask you this. Would you invite a murderer or a child rapist to watch your kids when you go to dinner? Absolutely not. Of course not. Why would we give Satan a place in our lives? Why would we give him a place in our lives? Through anger, worldliness, lack of submission, and unforgiveness. Some of you might need to just confess, Lord, I have done that. And, and you'll be forgiven right away. Just acknowledge it to the Lord. Because if you have yielded, not yielded those things and confessed them, Satan has a hold of your thinking, your mindset, to what's going on in your life. Just confess it and be forgiven. Be forgiven. We have a most powerful foe. He is our constant adversary. He is a murderer, a liar, the father of lies. He's like a monstrous reptile and a cunning serpent. And within that wicked deception, he tempts us to rely on our own wisdom, feelings, and understanding rather than God's word, to doubt God's goodness. Okay, so with that in mind, let's turn back to our passage in 1 Peter. Notice what our passage says he does. 1 Peter 4, verse 8, or 5, verse 8, excuse me. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Your adversary, your opponent, your enemy prowls about. It's, it, it gives you the picture of someone prowling about looking for someone to devour. The term devour speaks of gulping up, destroying. If you think of an animal devouring its prey, it's one bite at a time. You just see that. Devouring his prey. He prowls about like a roaring lion. You know, they say that the lion's roar is the loudest of any animal call. And the lion's roar is often used to, one, define territory for other lions. This is my territory. And secondly, a lion will roar. We even see this like with uh, Samson. The lion was roaring when he's about to attack it. A lion will roar when they're about to attack. Prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. To devour. Satan wants to devour you and I. You see, it's not speaking of non-believers here. They're in his domain already. 
He prowls about, as we're going to see. We are to resist him because of what he is doing. He is seeking a believer to devour spiritually. It's very serious. It's very serious. And here in the context of 1 Peter, these are believers who are suffering for doing what is right. When you follow the Lord Jesus Christ and you suffer for it, there is temptation within that that Satan could take advantage of if we are not alert, as we'll see, and thinking rightly. Do you remember in 1 Peter, we've seen what this suffering looks like. You know, we often think of suffering, we think of, you know, the suffering believers who are martyred and things like that. And yes, there is physical persecution. We see that in Scripture. We see the even, even Saul, you know, going to hunt down people. We see that. But more often than not, it's not simply physical persecution. In chapter 2, verse 12, we saw that our, our good deeds in the midst of unbelievers would cause them to slander us as evildoers. Chapter 2, verse 12. We saw the real possibility in chapter 2, verse 18 to 20, that, that an unreasonable master that we have might cause us to uh, be suffering unjustly. We saw in chapter 3, verse 9, that we are not to return evil for evil or insult for insult, obviously implying evil is coming upon us and insults are coming upon us. So in chapter 3, verse 14, that when we suffer, that we might suffer for the sake of righteousness and we're not to fear their intimidation or be troubled. We saw in verse 16 of chapter 3 that we are to keep a good conscience towards God in the very thing that we are being slandered. Slandered. That those who revile your what? Good behavior in Christ might be put to shame. Chapter 3, verse 17, it's better if God should will that we suffer for doing what is right than for what is wrong. Chapter 4, verse 4, we no longer go the way of our, our buddies before Christ and they malign us. It's almost all verbal here, by the way, but it has an effect. Chapter 4, verse 14, if you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Brother and sister, when you follow Jesus Christ and his righteousness is manifest in you, there are going to be times, if God allows it and wills it, that we're going to suffer for doing what is right. You may suffer at school for doing what is right. You may suffer at your job for doing what is right. You may suffer at church for doing what is right. You may suffer in your marriage for doing the right thing. If we're walking with the Lord at some time, we're going to suffer for doing what is right. And when that happens, you may lose friends for doing what is right. For doing what is right. And when that happens, we actually are in a position and vulnerable to Satan's temptations. What do I mean by that? You see, when we suffer for doing what is right, when we share the the sufferings of Christ, to the degree we share them, they're no fun. Have you ever suffered for Christ? It's no fun. It's no fun to be slandered. It's no fun to be maligned. It's no fun to lose relationships. It's no fun. It's no fun to have situations happen where where now there could be the concerns of, of, of my job now or whatever it might be. Whatever it might be. And when that happens, we see very clearly that we can have cares come upon us, that we can be concerned, that we can become anxious, that we can become worried Right before this passage, he says, Humble yourselves before the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety upon him, throwing it on Christ. Because as we're going to see, when you keep it, you are vulnerable to Satan's 
attacks. Vulnerable. How can we be tempted when, we, when we've done what is right? Now, certainly there's temptation when we do wrong. There's, there's certainly reality there. But you may be tempted to think this suffering is never going to end. It's never going to end. It's always going to be this way. You might be tempted to focus on your suffering rather than on Christ. You might be tempted to focus on yourself, feeling sorry for yourself, or even being tempted to think wrongly of those who are persecuting you. To revile or to react, whatever it might be. You might be tempted. We are vulnerable when we do what is right. So with this great spiritual danger in view, what are we to do? We have two commands in our passage. First of all, be sober of sober spirit, be on the alert. Two things. Because we have an enemy that seeks to devour us, is prowling about, ready to... He's made his call, you're his prey. He wants to devour us. What are we to do? First thing, notice in verse 8, be of sober spirit. The term spoke of sobriety. It spoke of without alcohol. Not being controlled by alcohol. But it, it came to speak more so of having a mind that is thinking correctly. That it's not controlled by worry, anger, fear, whatever it might be. You see, when we're suffering, we can be controlled by the thoughts of what's happening to us. We can be overwhelmed by them. And Satan will devour you spiritually. It says, be of sober spirit. Peter is fond of this word. He's used it before. We saw it in chapter uh, 1, verse 13. Gird your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be revealed to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We saw in chapter 4, verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit. Get your thoughts right. If you don't, Satan's going to devour you. Some of you are going through stuff. You need to cast your cares upon the Lord. And get your thoughts right. Whether you do it for doing what's right, whether it's a trial, whatever it is, get your thoughts right. Get your thinking right. Get it right. We are vulnerable to his attacks when our thinking is not right. Be of sober spirit. And by the way, it's a command. God is not suggesting it. He is commanding you and I as believers to be a sober spirit. Well, how can we do that? Let me share a passage of Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. You can turn there, Philippians 4, verse 6. We have things all day long that can tempt us to worry about stuff. If you're not tempted to worry, I don't know what's, I don't know if you're human. The reality is, we're tempted. Because, you know, once you, once you start to get to know the Lord more and more, you realize everything is out of our control. Right? Philippians 4, verse 6. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, through prayer and supplication, uh, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Don't be anxious, but pray about it. You got something in your life that's causing you to be tend to be anxious? If, you, if you've yielded, confess it, and then just keep praying about it. Oh, Lord, the situation, this, it just keep throwing it on the Lord. Oh, Lord, oh, Lord. And I thank you, Lord God, that you're going to take care of this. I'm, I'm coming before you. I can't handle it. But you can. Cast your cares upon him, for he cares for you. He's a mighty God. We're not mighty. He's mighty. He's mighty. Be a sober spirit. But notice there's another command. Be on the alert. Be on the alert. The term is, comes from the Greek word Gregor Oh, That's where my name comes from. Be on the alert. You can call me alert, all right? <laughs> 
Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. The term is translated many times, stay awake. And from that idea comes the idea of alertness. You know, when you're sleepy and tired, you're, you're, you're not awake, right? You're not alert, okay? Someone who's driving is like this, uh, you know, they're dozing off. That's, that's, that's not alert. The Lord Jesus encouraged Peter, James, and John to be on the alert and to be watchful. Same thing. Look at Matthew chapter 26. You see, it speaks of extreme watchfulness because of extreme danger. You know, if you've got a sentry at a post and they know the danger's out there and it's anywhere, they are on the alert. They're not just hanging out doing nothing. They know their life is on the line. Your spiritual walk is on the line. Be on the alert because the temptations are coming. They're coming, but we're going to see that we need to resist it. Matthew 26, this is in the night Jesus was portrayed and he's in the garden praying. Matthew 26, 37. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, and began to be grieved and distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. There's our word with me. Some versions say stay awake. Keep watch. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if, this is, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as thou will. And he said to the disciples, he found them sleeping, he said to Peter, so you men could not keep watch, there's our word, with me for an hour? And now he applies it spiritually. Keep watching, that's our word, and praying that you may not enter into what? Temptation. Be alert. Keep watching and praying that you would not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. Keep alert. When you are going through difficulties, keep alert because you're going to be tempted to not trust the Lord, to pull your mind off of him. You'll be tempted to yield to those things and Satan will devour you bite by bite by bite spiritually. And there are a lot of devoured believers out there, by the way. I'm on the alert for thoughts that contradict the truth of God, the character of God, that, that are not in line with his word as it's applied to my situation. We are to be of sober spirit and on the alert, on the alert. Are you walking in obedience to his word? If, it is, if you are, you're probably going to suffer. And that suffering is no fun. Be on the alert. Be of sober spirit. Don't let your thinking stray away from the truth of God and the God of truth. And we can, we can do that in a Christian manner very easily, can't we? We can put God's name on it and worry all about all sorts of stuff. Don't let it happen. Be on the alert. Now notice, we see that we're to be aware and know these attacks are coming. We know he's going to tempt us. But what are we to do when it happens? Look at our passage again. This is gonna be, I'm going to read verse 8 and then verse 9 is what I want to look at. Be a sober. This is 1 Peter 5. Be a sober spirit. Be on the alert. Why? Your adversary brother and sister we got an adversary the devil the, the throw through the, the, the slander the one who divides prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour to gulp up to devour but resist him firm in your faith knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world brothers and sisters because of the danger we are commanded to resist the devil firm 
as we'll see in a moment, in the faith. Resist him. It is a command. It is a command. It's not a passive activity. It is a command. We need to resist him and we need to know how to do that. How to do that. And how can we resist such a powerful foe? You know, there are some in in the Christian community who will say we need to speak our resistance against Satan, that we need to reprove him or rebuke him. I don't see that in Scripture, brothers and sisters. I don't see that here. I see even Michael, the strongest of angels, did not dare Jew to pronounce a railing judgment. But he said, the Lord rebuke you. We see here what we're to do. Resist him firm in your faith. That's how we resist him. Now, you'll notice if you have an NASB that the term yours in italics, and, and often the translators will put a word in italics to say, hey, this is not in the literal, original language when we translate it, but we think that's what the intent is, and that's appropriate. Yeah, most of the time, it's actually accurate and right, I would say. But here, I think the translators uh, should have kept it the way it was, and some other versions keep it this way. You could literally say it this way. Resist him firm in the faith. Firm in the faith. Amen. Thurman the, Thurman the faith. Now, what is the faith? We'll talk about this firmness, but what is the faith? It is the body of truth that has been handed down through the scriptures that we believe concerning Christ and what he has said. We see in Acts chapter 6, verse 7, that uh, the faith, speaking of the gospel there, is, is synonymous with the gospel, that those who got saved became obedient to the faith. We see in uh, Ephesians chapter 4.13 that he has given pastors and teachers for the equipping of saints to attain the unity of the faith, the truth that we believe concerning Jesus Christ and his word. Jude speaks of the faith once for all delivered to the saints, the truth of God from the God of the truth. Faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. The faith is the body of truth that we believe concerning the person of Christ and what he has said. Resist him, firm in the faith. This term firm comes from the Greek word steros. And we get our word steroid from. You think of steroid, big big guys, steroids, right? Firm, right? Firm. It speaks of being solid, hard, or firm. How do we resist the devil? Firm, solid in your trust in Christ and what he has said. You're being tempted to believe something different about your circumstances, about even yourself. Don't do it. Resist him. Firm in the faith. Believe what Jesus has said. Believe what he has said concerning your circumstances. We know this passage, and it was read earlier from Ephesians chapter 6. We are to take up the shield of faith, right? And notice what he says, which with which you will be able to extinguish all the fiery missiles of the evil one. When you trust in the Lord Jesus and what he has said, Satan cannot devour you. All his missiles will not get hit you. Now, can he mess with us? Yes, we see that in the book of Job. But does God turn it out for good? We know his compassion and mercy, right? But he can't devour you spiritually. He cannot devour you spiritually. When you believe what God has said, you trust in him, no matter what you see, no matter what you feel, no matter what is happening to you, you reinterpret those events by what God has said while you trust Jesus Christ. Satan cannot devour you when you are trusting in Christ, firm in the faith. 
Now, I don't believe we can have a dependent faith without prayer either. Remember, we heard the Lord Jesus tell us, keep watching and praying that you may not be led into temptation. We're commanded to be sober, get your thoughts right, not intoxicated by worry or fear, confess it, offer it up to the Lord, cast your cares on him. We're commanded to be on the alert. I've got to be watchful. I'm going to a circumstance. I might get these thems, these thoughts coming my way that are contradictory to the word of God. I've got to be watchful. And then when it happens, I resist him, firm in the faith. Well, let me ask you this. Is your faith solid? Is your faith firm? This is being written to people who are suffering for doing the right thing, not people who are sinning. It's people who are suffering for doing the right thing, and they and we need to be told. We're vulnerable. How much more vulnerable are we when we're in sin? We're actually just an open, open for the attacks. Confess your sin and be right with the Lord. You see, James chapter 4 speaks of those who have failed in sin and what they need to do, how Satan's got a hold. Let's just look at that for a second. James 4. The context is, what are the source of your troubles? Hey, it's your desires. That's what it is. That's the source of your trouble. That's the source of your conflicts. And don't you know that friendship with the world, the way the world functions is me, myself, and I, is envy with God? And then he says, speaks of God's grace. James chapter 4, verse 6. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud. Think you can handle it? No way. Think you can get away with your own desires? No way. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble, his favor to those who will humble themselves before him. Submit, therefore, to God. Stop bugging him. Submit to him. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God. He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands. This is repentance. I've blown it, Lord. I've been worried. I've been consumed by this. Whatever it might be, I've blown it, Lord. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord. He will exalt you. So our passage is speaking to believers um, who are not sinning, but suffering for doing the right thing. But here we see what to do when you have blown it. So now at this point, we see we are in a life and death spiritual struggle. Satan has devoured believers. No, they're still saved, but their lives are useless for Christ in that moment. They're actually a bad example. They're trampled underfoot. Their testimonies are, are destroyed. The conflict, if this is going on in your life, you've got conflict all out your life. Stuff is going on all over the place. But if you're following the Lord and you're suffering, we're commanded here very clearly, be sober spirit, to be watchful and to resist the devil, Right? Now notice he gives an example. He gives an example of the truth that we should be thinking of so that we don't become prey to the devil. Now the example really comes in verses 9 and 10. We're only going to see verse 9 today for time. We'll see 10 next week. But look at verse 9. But resist him, back in 1 Peter 5, firm in your faith, knowing, knowing something. The term translated knowing, there's two different Greek words that are translated, actually three translated to know in Greek. This one speaks of knowledge that comes from experience. You know it. You've seen it. You've seen it. Knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren around the world. Resist him, firm in the faith, knowing your brothers and sisters are are suffering the same way. It is not just you. You are not by yourself like Elijah, right? It's not just you. We can be tempted. Oh, Lord, I'm the only one suffering. No, Satan will get you. 
Your brothers and sisters are suffering too. But there's a very interesting word here. He says, the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished. Accomplished. This word accomplished is the Greek word epitaleo. Teleo means finished, completed. Jesus on the cross, it is finished. Tetelestai, teleo. Epitaleo speaks of successful completion of what has begun. Knowing that you're spreading around the world are successfully completing the suffering. God has brought them to a successful completion. You know this in the past and it affects you now. Apply this truth. True believers are suffering, but God is bringing them through successfully. And that's what the next verse is really about, which is really wonderful. God is bringing them through successfully. You see, our suffering is producing an eternal weight of glory. Wonderful. Look at uh, 2 Corinthians 4. The Apostle Paul suffered a lot, I'll tell you that. But he renewed his mind. He, he was a man like us, right? 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. He basically says, we're basically di- almost dying all the time. We're almost going to die all the time. We're going through such suffering. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16. Therefore, we don't lose heart. Oh, Satan wants you to lose heart. I'll tell you that right now. He wants to devour you. Therefore, we don't lose heart. But though the outer man is decaying for his situation, it's through suffering, almost dying, by the way. Outer man is decaying, he says here. Yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For Amen. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. He says, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things that are not seen. Satan wants you to look at the things that are seen. He wants to devour you. Don't do it. Paul says, things that are not seen, for the things that are seen are temporal, but the things that are not seen are eternal. And you don't need to turn there, but in Romans chapter 8, the apostle Paul says, I consider the sufferings of this present time nothing to be compared to the glory that is going to be revealed. We'll see in verse 10 that God has called us to his eternal glory. And even before that, he's going to strengthen, confirm, perfect. He's going to, he's going to build us up. He's going to finish the work. He's going to cause this suffering to do good in us. And you need to think that way. And you need to see that he has already done that with other people, knowing that the same sufferings are being accomplished or successfully completed by your brethren around the world. And let me read this last verse. We won't get into it today. Verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while, hey, it's not long. Compared to eternity, it's certainly not long. He says, the God of all grace, he gives grace to the humble. First Peter 5.10. Who called you to his eternal glory in Christ. Wow. Now you know why we didn't finish this today, right? He says, will himself, that's personally perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. That's what you need when you're suffering. And God will personally do it. And guess what? Your brothers and sisters around the world, God is doing that in them. You've seen it. It affects you now. Know this and resist him firm in the faith. Resist him firm in the faith. So how can we keep from being spiritually devoured by our enemy? How can we keep from being gulped up spiritually? We need to get our thinking right. Be of sober spirit. Don't let worry anxiety, whatever it might be, control you about your circumstances. Yes, it's tough. It's hard. But it's not the full picture. It's temporal. Renew your mind with the word of God. 
cast your cares upon him by humbling yourself, by the way, because he cares for you. Secondly, we need to be watchful. We need to be on the alert. These thoughts are going to come. The thoughts to doubt God, to focus on yourself, to have the pity party, whatever it is, it's going to come. Be on the alert. Be watchful. We've got an enemy who prowls about like a roaring lion, ready to devour. And when you do have those temptations, resist the devil. And obviously we trust the Lord all the time. Firm in the faith, solid in your trust in Jesus and what he has said. Believe what he has said. Because we know he's doing good in our trials. We see that in our brothers and sisters around the world who are suffering. God is completing it. He's doing good. We've been called to glory. Some of you may be suffering for Jesus, and the suffering continues. Maybe it's a relationship. Not many friends now, whatever it might be. You've done the right thing. Lost a job, being persecuted because you did the right thing in the church. I'm not talking about being a jerky Christian. talking about obeying the Lord righteously. Slandered, maligned, all sorts of evil spoken against you, and it's not going away. It's getting worse. Get your thinking straight. Be on the alert. Satan wants to tempt you. Resist him firm in the faith. Trust the Lord Jesus. He's doing good through these trials. Some of you might have yielded and you are being devoured by Satan and it's evident in your life. You're intoxicated by worry and fear. You're yielding to these things. There's just a big mess all around you and it's always someone else's fault. There's a whole list of stuff. I was talking to one person, you know, and, and it's just like a list of excuses, one after another. Humble yourself. Lord, I'm so sinful. I failed so badly. I'm sorry. Humble yourself, confess it, and you'll be forgiven. And when Satan attacks, be sober, be on the alert, resist him firm in the faith. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you so much for your word. It is so wonderful. You love us so much. You don't want us to be devoured. You want to do good in our lives. And you've warned us, and you've commanded us three commands here, Lord God, and I pray we would be obedient. And I pray this obedience would be in the context of trust in your son, Jesus. Lord, I pray for anyone here who is in Satan's domain, who hasn't truly repented of their sins and trusted in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that they would turn and they would recognize you love them so much. You gave your son and he died for their sins and rose from the dead. They would turn and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Father, I pray for anyone here who has been devoured, bite after bite, Satan devouring them spiritually, that they would be humble before you and confess areas of sin and be forgiven and step out in faith, trusting you. You're a good God. And Father, for those of us following you, wanting to follow you, Lord God, doing the right thing, Lord God, I pray that we would be obedient to your word as you have commanded these brothers and sisters back in this day that we would be sober spirit, watchful, that we would resist the devil, trusting your son Jesus, believing his word. Thank you for your word. And we pray this in your son's precious name. Amen.